And so this weekend we're tackling the question, I believe in God, but can I trust the Bible? I think everybody who has faith kind of has a journey of faith and also a journey with the Bible itself. And so I just want to ask, I'd love to hear just kind of what has your uh, journey, kind of your story with scripture looked like? Um, And have you ran into that question before? Can I trust the Bible? Yeah. So for me, I grew up in church and it was always, you know, introduced or prefaced as a story. Like today we're looking at the story of Moses. You know, it's this, these uh, documents written thousands of years ago. Um, And so I question whether or not we can really, you know, trust what's in these stories, whether they actually happened. Shortly after college, I had a good friend named Nate who uh, was a, you know, when I met him, a great Christian, kind of just strong believer. And he stepped away from the faith. And when I asked him, I said, Nate, what's going on? You know, he started saying, hey, I had questions about the Bible or about things that happened in the Bible. You know, the murder of, you know, innocent people in the Old Testament, you know, or Mm -hmm. women and children or the slaughter of entire people groups. I found myself without good answers in the moment, which Mm -hmm. caused me to have questions, which then caused me to say, well, can can I trust the Bible if I can't even answer questions Mm -hmm. that other people have about the Bible, you know? You want to you want to separate them as two different gods because mm. you have two different covenants as the Old Testament and New, Co- and New Testament covenant, and the reality is that they're the same God, and it kind of that's hard to yeah. hard to reconcile that, right? Well, for me, not growing up in the church at all, I didn't have a foundation in the scriptures, and so when the tough questions started to emerge, and especially as a teenager, uh, the questions of science age of the earth was the earth created in seven days or was uh, the earth did it take you know billions of years through an evolutionary process right Uh, and so though those were the tough questions early on but then as I got into college and kind of out of uh, the little bubble that I grew up in here in the Bible Belt then there were even more uh, challenging questions you know trying to reconcile this God of the Old Testament, who who comes across uh, as the judge and who has wrath and anger, and you see it displayed in various instances, but then uh, you see Jesus, who's merciful and meek and kind, who then sacrifices his life. So I think when we have questions like this around the Bible, we can kind of respond. I think a lot of us just respond in one of the different ways, right? We either discredit the Bible entirely, and we just push it aside completely or we just you know distance ourselves from it and disengage because we're just not quite sure what to do with it well good morning and welcome to rockbridge my name is matt i want to welcome you to all five of our locations or maybe you're tuning in via our website watching the video or somebody gave you a cd thank you however you're joining we're glad you're here we're in the middle of a series called i believe in god but And so today's question to me is foundational. It's like blocking and tackling in football. It's, I believe in God, but can we trust the Bible? And can we put our faith in this this collection of writings, this book that Christians so heavily lean on? I mean, if you come to Rockbridge, you know every week I'm going to talk to you from something that comes out of these texts, these 66 books. So so it's, why do we do that? Can we trust the Bible? There's kind of two big broad groups of people that I discover. There's people who were sort of just raised, well, the Bible says so, so just do it, salute, accept it, follow it. 
And, and, and let me say this, I, I think that's right in some ways, but it's wrong in others because I think our faith can be deeper than just because the Bible says so. We want us to be able to say, hey, just because the Bible says so, but let's understand why we can trust the Bible. So there's some of you and you've never been allowed to question and you don't question or some of you just you never said them out loud because you were going to get ostracized. So we're going to talk about that. There's others of you who are like, you know, I, I, the Bible's okay, but is it, is it the, the, the big deal? Is it the real thing? And can I really, really uh, get into it? So we're all over the map on this, but it's sooner or later, it, whether you follow Christ or not follow Christ, you have to come to terms with this book. You have to come to terms with what it says and what it claims. And, and I'm going to go ahead and upfront tell you, uh, I love the Bible. I think next to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it's the second greatest miracle that God has given us and blessed us with. Let me start at the beginning and just kind of tell you what we at Rockbridge believe, and then we'll build from there, okay? So 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Timothy is where I find one of the best statements about what Scripture is. And it's Paul to Timothy where he says, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you and you taught, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred Scriptures. And so he talks about the specialness of Scripture, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable or valuable or useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So listen, the Bible is not only about eternal life, it is also about a complete life while you're living on earth. Now, at Rockbridge, I want to share with you, I don't do this a lot, but here is what our church believes about the Bible. We believe that the Bible, which we believe is the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is the Word of God, written by human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So human personalities, real people, real time, real place in history came under the influence, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is truth without error, and some of there's pushback here, and we're going to deal with some of that. Trustworthy and the supreme authority for all matters of faith and practice. Now, let me say this. Whether you agree with that statement or not, everybody that's listening to me has a Bible. It may not be these 66 books. It might be how you feel. It might be how your granddaddy did it. It might be, how, your Bible might be what everybody around you is doing. Uh, your, your Bible might be whatever makes you likable, whatever makes people, you, whatever gets you people's approval. Uh, your Bible might be something that's kind of a mix of the traditions you grew up in, your personality, and culture. So everybody here today has a rule, a standard, something that you judge situations by, something that you base your hope on, something that you think will help you today, tomorrow, and the next day, something that might help you make sense. Now, now there's another group of people, and some of you are like, well, actually, Matt, I'm here today because I don't have anything, or, or what I did have has sort of fallen apart. It's a great time to be in church. Because we're going to talk about why I think better than Matt Evans running Matt Evans' life, better than how I feel tonight or how I might feel tomorrow morning, better than what the weather is outside or what 25 people think about me or think about you, I would posit today that this ought to be the supreme source of truth and authority and direction and guidance in your life. So let us talk about what the Bible is 
or what we believe about the Bible and build from there. And we're going to handle a ton, a ton of questions. It's going to feel like uh, information overload, so hang in there, because here we go. The Scriptures are true or contain a body of truth. I, when I say they're true and truth, I don't mean all truth. The Scriptures don't tell you how to work a calculus problem. The Scriptures don't tell you how to operate a nuclear reactor. The Scriptures don't tell you, you know, h- how to do this or how to do certain things. But for what they teach us, show us, reveal, whether it's history or how to live or how to be right with God, the Scriptures contain a body of truth. Now, here's some challenges we need to address in our culture. In our culture, people want to say that if it can't be proved, or proven by science, then it is not true and it's not, therefore it's not trustworthy. You cannot prove history using the scientific method. So when people attack Christianity or attack scriptures and say, well, that's anti-science. Listen, I'm a pro-science guy. The Navy taught me how to run nuclear reactors. And I didn't open my Bible to learn how to do that. I had, a, I had science and, and physics and thermodynamics, okay? So I am not an anti-science person at all. Okay, my wife is sitting here alive because of medical science. Okay, so listen, that's not what we're talking about. But to say that the only things that are true come through scientific discovery is blatantly false and inaccurate. I can't scientifically prove that Alexander the Great existed, but historical documents can tell me that, and the Bible is a historical document. So that's number one. The second thing that we get pushed on in culture is this. Well, as long as somebody is sincere and passionate, they're okay. Man, I, man, they're just so sincere. They're just so passionate. What we're talking about today is deeper and beyond that because sincerity and passion do not equal truth. Sincerity and passion does not necessarily mean something is true. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And let me give you an example of how someone who had sincerity and passion... I believe, misused this book and landed in a deadly place. All right? Here's the picture. Okay? If you ever see one of these in Rockbridge, I am no longer here or the pastor. Okay? Just want to make sure you understand that. This is Pastor Jamie Coots, uh, who was a snake handling preacher. And he took the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, the last half of that, where it describes uh, that... In Jesus' name, people will not be harmed by the viper and the venom won't hurt and all that kind of stuff, all right? So two issues with that Mark 16, last half of Mark 16. The earliest manuscripts do not contain Mark 16, number one. Number two, he takes a passage that is descriptive, describing effects rather than prescriptive. Prescriptive is do not commit adultery. Descriptive is they all gather together in people's homes. One describes something, one prescribes. A prescription is a command. A description is just telling you what was going on. So he does that. He's bitten by a rattlesnake over a 20-year ministry eight times. The ninth time took his life. It killed him. Okay, that is an example of someone who takes the Bible, who is sincere and who's passionate and who's fired up, but misses the truth. So that's not what we're talking about here. And Christianity sometimes gets lumped into this and attacked. Christianity gets lumped in to this and and Westboro Baptist Church and and like, well, they're they're just fanatical and stuff. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about truth. I'm talking about not sincerity first. I'm talking about truth. So let's talk about why we can put our confidence in the Bible when we go about it the right way. The first is archaeology. You've heard me say this. 
You've heard me say this, that the scriptures, there's 24,000 plus archaeological digs in the Holy Land. They have never once refuted anything found in the Bible. Never once disproven anything the Bible says from terms of history or people or places. And old people have tried. Here's a renowned Jewish archaeologist who makes this statement that categorically no archaeological discovery has ever invalidated a biblical reference. So we have the, the, the testimony of archaeology, an archaeologist affirming Scripture as true. Number two, we have eyewitnesses. The Bible was written by a bunch of eyewitnesses. Paul says 500 people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Some of them are still alive. And what he's doing there is saying, if you doubt me, go down there to Jerusalem and interview them because they're still living and they can tell you what they saw. Here's a great question we can ask ourselves. Would Peter, who denied Jesus three times while Jesus was still alive, Jesus, Peter said, I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy. He did it three times. Would he have died for a dead Jesus? Peter was crucified in Rome upside down. Upside down because he believed in a resurrected king that Rome felt was competing with Caesar. So Jesus was a, a spiritual uh, and, a, and, a, and a, a political threat to Caesar and the Roman Empire at that time. And so Peter's crucified upside down. Would he have done that for a dead Jesus when he wouldn't even stand firm for a living Jesus? Pascal says this, I believe in eyewitnesses who've had their throats cut. Most of the authors of the Bible died for what they believed. So they died for what they saw and the truth of what they saw. Another area of confidence that the scriptures are true are what we call manuscripts or how we have our English Bible and how it got translated and passed down to us from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek uh, and there's a little Aramaic, but Hebrew and Greek predominantly. And so I think the manuscript evidence tells us that we rely, have reliable documents that were inspired by God and the original texts have been transmitted. Now, if we get a, if Christianity gets attacked because people say, well, there's all these manuscripts and they've all got these mistakes in them. And, and, and how do we know someone didn't alter the manuscripts? So let's go there. There are about 160,000 instances of what they call variations between manuscript A and manuscript B. So let's break that down just a little bit. So if a, if a word, let's just pick a scripture. If Colossians 1.1, there's a misspelled word, and that misspelling gets carried on into the next 3,000 manuscripts, that's how they get to 160,000. I would just say it's one mistake that was repeated by a monk who was copying it 3,000 times. So when we take those instances out, we're down to 10,000. 10,000 variances between, uh, the, the, between manuscripts. All but 400 of those are spelling errors. You know, and we can spell words differently in English. J-O-H-N is John and J-O-N is John. So there's spelling errors. All but 40 of those are sentence word orders, okay? The Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ our Lord. That's all we're talking about. And of those remaining, how many change anything theological, spiritual, anything relating to who God is, anything relating to what the Scriptures do? Zip, zero, nada, none. So when we take all these manuscripts, I just think we have a reliable collection of, the, of manuscripts that tell us, uh, that, that compose the Bible. And then there's a, there's a phrase for that. It's a good one to learn. Multiplicity of manuscripts. 
This means we have multiple copies of all these manuscripts. So the accusation that a secret monk society started altering biblical manuscripts would have taken an absolute miracle because they'd had to go find all those manuscripts, some of which were buried in caves in, in the Dead Sea, some of which were been found underneath layers of dirt and in jars, some of which were spread all throughout Europe. So how is one secret society going to go personally locate 15, 20, 30,000 manuscripts and change everything to have some secret uh, that Jesus was really a person and that he wasn't born of a virgin, but they doctored all these manuscripts to say that he was? How is that going to happen? I, I, it can't. So here's a great example. In, in, a, in a museum in London, in a vault, is a titanium rod that's the, a yard long. And it is the official standard of what a yard is, or 36 inches, right? 100-yard football field. It is the official standard of a yard. Now, if that got lost, are we going to freak out? And be like, oh, my gosh, we can't play any more football games. Oh, it's all over. We don't know how long a yard is. No, because we have copies of copies of copies of what a yard is. So if there were one copy of the Bible in some cave or some vault in the Vatican, we'd all have doubts. Well, did somebody doctor it? And what if something happened to that? Instead, what did God do? Miraculously, providentially preserved for you and I and, 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 and professors and, and experts a multiple, multiple collection of reliable manuscripts. So we can say archaeology, manuscripts, and eyewitnesses. Now let's press into some of the issues that have been texted in and the common issues that you hear or your kids are going to hear as they bump into, hey, can we trust the Bible? So here's some of the objections or some of the issues that we need to address. First is the issue of interpretation. We've looked at one example, Pastor Coots, 2014, in Mark chapter 16, taking a passage of, of the Gospel of Mark. We get into trouble when we take everything in the Bible as literal in, instead of first understanding the genre. Now, don't hear me say that the Bible is not true. I preached this one time before, and someone said, Matt Evans doesn't believe the Bible, because here's all I said. When Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Did Jesus literally mean cut it off? If, or, or, or Let's talk about this one, men. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. So every dude that's ever looked at a girl, we ought to be Popeye right now. You understand? That is not what Jesus meant. What is Jesus meaning? Take sin seriously. Because God chose to inspire human authors, you and I, we use poetry. There's poetry in the Bible. Read the Song of Solomon. It's the best romance novel you'll ever read. Because Jesus, or God chose to inspire human authors, you'll find history, you'll find exaggeration, you'll find metaphor, you'll find similes, you'll find lists. Because how do we write? How do we communicate? You'll find apocalyptic literature in Daniel and in some of Matthew and in the book of Revelation. And how you interpret a poem differs from how you interpret prose. Genesis 1 is a poem. Genesis 2 is not. How you interpret history is different than how you might look at a letter. So before we go and say, let's all hold a snake in church next week, we need to understand the genre. And that causes us to get in trouble and people misunderstand Christianity because we misinterpret Scripture. We have cultural and we have historical factors. We have to understand the Bible was written by people like you and me in a real year, in a real time, in a real season, in a real place, and they had real history. So we have to understand 
what, as much as we can what was going on with the original audience before we get too crazy about drawing conclusions. So, for example, if we are to impose 21st century culture on a 1st century document there, and 1st century communication, we're going to have issues. So when people come and, and say, well, the Bible uh, it talks about polygamy, the Bible is for polygamy. Well, first, you have to go back and, and understand the original audience and that God was working in broken, fallen cultures with broken and fallen families. All right, so here's what the Bible teaches, though. Every instance of polygamy in the Scriptures ends in disaster, in complete disaster. So before you say the Bible is for polygamy or never, or never criticizes polygamy, first, it's, it's, a histor- it's history when it's talking about it. And sometimes history, when you're writing history, don't comment yay or nay one way or the other. It just is what it is. But every time it ends in disaster. Other instances include slavery. When you and I hear slavery, we think of the evil and the atrocity that we fought a civil war over in the United States. First century slavery was vastly different than slavery in the 1800s in the United States. First century slavery, most of those slaves were treated as members of the family and they could earn their freedom. They became slaves due to debt usually or they were conquered in a battle and then eventually they can earn their freedom. Vastly different than what we see in America. I'm not, and both slaveries are abolished and should be, but before we impose a standard from our perspective, we need to know what was going on in their culture and in their history. Another one we come up across is science. You heard Dustin in our video as we're journeying with four fellas and they're, and they're wrestling with the Bible. Well, what about science, and does the Bible uh, contradict science, or does science contradict the Bible? All right, here's Matt Evans' answer. I think they complement each other beautifully, and I don't get that just on my own. A guy named John Calvin, one of the great thinkers of the Protestant Reformation in in 1500s or so, said, here's the value of science, is natural theology. Like, you, as you get into nature, you see God as a God of beauty, God as a God of design, and God as a God of order, and it helps us understand God's attributes. Romans 1 makes the same exact point. I had a professor in my master's degree program. His daughter was an astrophysicist. He, she sends him a message and says, there's a revival going on among astrophysicists in my, where I'm studying. Because as they peeled back the layers of the atom and the neutron, the electron, they were just like, only an intelligent, all-powerful creator designer could do all this. And once you get all-powerful creator, it's easy to make a step to an all-loving Savior who was resurrected from the dead. So science can actually reveal God to us. Now, there are instances in the Bible where the Bible says something that suppo- that's, that sort of science has disproven. And that, to, in, that's where the, the biblical author is writing from the perspective of his or her readers. You do this all the time, and you're not being anti-scientific. Let me explain. If I teach my kids the sun rises in the east... That's a true statement about direction, but it's not a scientifically true statement. But from our perspective here on earth, the sun does rise in the east. So in one of the Psalms, it basically says, rise in the east, sets in the west. And, oh, the Bible's wrong, the Bible's wrong. Well, one, that's written from the perspective of the audience, not from the perspective of a scientist or a scientific document, from the perspective of the audience. But incidentally, here's what I would say. If my boys are lost in the woods and they know if you head east, they might run into a road and get help and the sun comes up that morning, do I want them sitting there saying, well, it's not scientific. The sun doesn't really rise in the east. Go to the east. You'll get out, right? 
So don't miss the forest for the trees, okay? So that's how I would explain science and and the Scripture. All right, let's press on because we keep nitpicking the Bible. Let's keep understanding some things. Other issues are some things that we discover in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament seems different than the New Testament. That's almost like two different gods. You heard somebody talk about that in the video. So first, we come to the issue of mass killings. Inside the Old Testament, there are mass murders, or not mass murders, there are military campaigns that wipe out whole cities and whole peoples and families and everything. And, and people say, well, well, God's just evil, or God's arbitrary, or what's going on? Well, one, got to go back to the original audience, the original time, but all the mass killings you see are God's judgment of, of difficult situations and difficult people. When God tells Joshua to wipe out the Canaanites because they're evil, we don't, what does that mean they were evil? I'll tell you what it means. It means they were sacrificing kids and cannibalizing kids. So once you put it in perspective, once you understand what God is trying to do with Israel, which is preserve militarily, economically, spiritually, and socially a body of people, a group of people to bring the Messiah in the world, then he's taking steps to protect his people from the evil around them. So let's put it in our context. Let's go back a couple years ago, the rise of ISIS. And once we discovered ISIS was a threat to the United States, was ISIS was a threat to democracy and, and the West. And let's say there was a mass of ISIS soldiers. Let's pick a number. Let's go 30,000. And they're assembled somewhere. And we know what they're doing. We know what they're plotting. And the president orders a massive assault, a massive attack on those 30,000 ISIS soldiers. And let's say we get the report coming back in, you know, two, three weeks later, hey, the United States has had a complete victory. And all of those ISIS soldiers have been killed or captured. Are we sad? Or are we grateful and humbled? See, once you understand context, this takes a different light. Let me give you two more examples about mass killings. During the Holocaust, Jewish leaders went into the White House and spoke with President Roosevelt and begged him to order the bombings of the concentration camps, most notably Auschwitz, and the railroad lines leading into those concentration camps. Jews would have been killed, and Germans and and the SS that ran the camps would have all been killed. Now, the president never gave that order, and there's some debate about whether he should or should not have. That's not the point. But the point, though, is in in the context of 10 million people being exterminated by a radical fascist leader, suddenly this doesn't look like the worst option on the table. I'm not saying that's what's going on in Joshua. I'm just saying you can't take one statement and then just judge a whole book by it without digging deep. One more on mass killings, and then we'll move forward. President Truman became the president when Franklin Roosevelt passed away. He did not know we had an atomic bomb being developed through the Manhattan Project. They come and tell him he's got that option if he chooses to exercise it. And so he ordered atomic bombs to be dropped on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and thousands and thousands and thousands of Japanese were killed. People say it's an immoral decision. I'm not going to debate the merits of the president's decision. Here is what is undebatable. If the United States and its allies had to invade mainland Japan to end World War II, the number of American and Japanese casualties would have far exceeded the casualties that resulted from the dropping of the two atomic bombs. Those are horrific decisions that our presidents have had to make. I am not debating the morality of those decisions. All I am trying to get us to understand is you have to understand context before we rush and say something's wrong or that should never have happened. 
That's all we're trying to say. In the context of the Old Testament, God is interested in the survival of Israel, and he's judging horrific evil being done by human beings. Another issue of the Old Testament is people say, all these laws, and you Christians don't have to follow them. There's two different books. There must be two different gods. Because there's, you're not supposed to get a tattoo in the Old Testament. Why? You got people on your stage at Rockbridge with tattoos. All right? Well, let's explain it. All right? I'll explain it. In the Old Testament, remember, God has a goal. And God's goal is to preserve ethnic, ethnic, ethnic Israel as a spiritual, political, and social group of people for him to bring the Messiah into the world, that's Jesus, so he can bless the entire world from the seed or the bloodline, if you will, of this ethnic Israel or the Hebrew people. So he's got to preserve, keep pure, this group of people. So there's three types of laws that we see in the Old Testament. The civil law, which would be like, don't get a tattoo, and there's tons of others, what you eat, what you don't eat, all that kind of stuff. The ceremonial law, which would be like the animals you sacrifice for your sins, the feasts, the festivals, none of which we observe anymore. We're not slaughtering cows in, in church or anything like that for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And then the moral law, don't commit adultery, don't steal, worship only one God. So here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, I have come to fulfill the law. So because the blessing of Jesus, or really the the Abrahamic blessing that we found about in Genesis 12 comes through the Jewish people, comes through Jesus, and the whole world now gets grafted into Israel. So new Israel is the church people who are born again of the Holy Spirit into the family of God out of their ethnic group. So God is no longer restricting his work to one ethnic group of people. In fact, the church is all walks of life, socioeconomic, ethnic, and racial. So the civil laws designed to keep Israel as Israel externally and how they look, those were fulfilled in Christ because God's not dealing with ethnic Israel anymore. So you can get a tattoo if you wish, okay? Ceremonial laws, all right? So it's interesting to me, the people who say, well, you shouldn't get a tattoo, I don't find them slaughtering cows either. If you're going to tell somebody they can't get a tattoo, you better start slaughtering the hog for your sins. Okay, but here's what happened. Jesus fulfilled this, and Jesus was the sacrifice once for all time. So this is fulfilled in Christ, this is fulfilled in Christ. Now, we still don't commit adultery, tell the truth, worship God only. Jesus fulfills this because Jesus puts himself inside of us. We get the Holy Spirit, and suddenly we have the desire to live differently. We have the desire and the ability in the Holy Spirit to keep the moral law of God. So we fulfill the moral law of God because Jesus is now able to put his spirit inside of us. So has Jesus fulfilled the civil? Yes, there's no, Israel is now anyone who puts their faith in Christ. Has Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial? Yes, he was the sacrifice for all sins at all times. Yes, has Jesus fulfilled the moral, yes, he puts his spirit and writes his laws in the heart of people in accordance with Ezekiel 37, 38. Praise God. Thank God for Jesus. So the scriptures ultimately are about Jesus. And they progressively reveal him and get fulfilled in him. Do not look at scripture apart from Christ. Look at what he says. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. For if you believe Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me, but if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Notice what he says. This book 
has progressively revealed Christ. So I read this book, and it's like putting on a pair of glasses to help me see Christ clearly and see how God has kept his promises, fulfilled his promise as he's revealed Jesus to us. And the issue is, still today, still today, do I believe his words? Do I believe his words? So let me summarize what we've talked about so far. We must understand historical context, literary genre, and progressive revelation. And then the Bible starts to come alive and make sense in places where it might not otherwise make sense. So we say the Bible is true, and that leads us to the next statement, which is that the Bible is also trustworthy. And by trustworthy, what I mean is the Bible is valuable. It has value to our life. We can trust it. We can build a life on it. We can fix our marriages because of it. We can find out answers to questions because of it. Now, it's important that we wrestle with a cultural problem, okay? Parents need to listen up. Teenagers need to listen up. All of us need to listen up because here's what's going on in our culture, and we need to understand we don't make this mistake, okay? What I have argued today is what scripture argues it's true and therefore it's true in a way that is profitable to our lives or valuable to our lives because of the truth it contains about man about christ about god about purpose about identity about significance it's true so it's profitable what you and your kids and me and my kids are being encouraged to believe is as long as something is profitable then we can call it well it's true for me and so people choose churches. Oh, I, had, I felt good. It must be true. I mean, we can smoke weed and feel good for a while, right? So let's, go, let's be a little deeper than that, you know? I've never tried that, by the way. All right? <clears throat> so, but, but this is culture. It's profitable, therefore it's true for me. The Bible says it's true, therefore it's profitable. And let's understand this. This is how people get divorces. This is how ISIS started. This is how, so let's, let's, go, let's do a little exercise. Let's say you're on your way home from work and you decide to text your teenager who's home and say, hey, text sex, drive, text sex. And you're like, hey, preheat the oven to 350. I got a casserole we're going to bake and we'll have dinner. And then so you get home and man, the oven's preheated, throw the casserole in. 35 minutes later, you're sitting down with your family to eat. You're like, man, that was profitable. That was good. Therefore, it's good for me and good for my family. There's some people, and maybe some of you in this room or know people, who've been injured or had loss of life in your family because somebody was texting while driving. They've passed a law against it called hands-free driving, right? So all I'm trying to say is just because something is profitable doesn't mean it should be declared true. But this is what you're encouraged to do in our culture. Oh, it feels good. It must be true for me. Oh, uh, I, I had fun doing it. It must be true for me. Versus is it true and then we go to profitable. This is what scripture does. This is what culture does. This is, oh, oh this, uh, I'm going to divorce my wife. That's true for me. God doesn't want me to be stay, God didn't want me to stay married to her because I found someone else and she makes me feel good. So it's true for me that I can, seriously? But that's the logic that people have. And like I said, everybody in here has got a Bible. Is yours the true one? Because no matter where you are, no matter if you've been to church, no matter if you're a Buddhist, no matter if you're an atheist, an agnostic, or been in church, there's four questions you've got to answer. 
There are four questions you got to answer. You're going to answer. You're going to ask these questions, kind of your preteen years. Maybe when you leave home for the first time, go to college, get your first job. Maybe when you become, a, a, you know, a dad, a mom, or get married. Maybe a midlife crisis, and toward the end of your life, here's the questions. You got to answer them. Everybody answers them. The questions are: Who am I? Why am I here? All right. Now listen. There's a school of thought out there that says you're an evolutionary random accident. And I'm not talking about science as just science. I'm talking about a worldview of how you view the world. There's a school of thought that says, hey, I am, I, I just, I'm autonomous. I don't need anybody. I just do what I want to do when I want to do it. See how that works when you get married. All right. <clears throat> but why am I here? So the next question, why am I here? Increasingly... Here's what's being sold by the wrong Bibles. I'm using a play on words. Bad Bibles, right? You're here to consume and enjoy. Just consume and enjoy. Hey, just consume and enjoy. Just consume and enjoy. Now, here's, here, now look, I want you to follow me logically because this is where we are. Okay, if I'm here to consume and enjoy, what happens if you get in the way of my ability to consume and enjoy? Isn't that why we have abortions? Oh, a child's inconvenient right now. Well, first of all, tell me a time when a child's ever convenient, okay? Well, I'm not ready to have a kid right now. Well, you shouldn't have sex. Because that baby, when I open this true Bible, that tells me that baby is God's. From the moment of conception. So that means I'm looking out at hundreds of people, talking to thousands of people, There ain't none of you that's an accident. Every one of you is precious and valuable in the sight of God. Period. Let's take it a step further. Well, old people, elderly people. Well, they're getting in, that is too much money to take care of. And I'm here to consume and enjoy. And they're not precious in God's sight. They're kind of past their prime. So what are we encouraging people to do? Physician-assisted suicide. Because they're interfering with why I'm here. And I'm here to consume and enjoy. I'm not here to love someone sacrificially, am I? (laughs) That's the school of thought. Because we all got to answer these questions. And how you answer them has implications. How you answer them has implications. Versus God's the author of life, and he's the one that receives us in death, and he, and he alone needs to decide when my time and your time is done. So what is wrong with the world? That's the third question. Something in me, something in you is wrong that makes me think or you think that my standard is better than God's standard. Now, if you take the Bible out, you know what people say is wrong with the world? People need more education, more information, and more government. That's the solution. Take God out of the picture, take scriptures out of everything, then how do we solve what's wrong? More information, more government, and, and, that's, and that'll solve everything. So give people more information and more government. More information, more government. 
I have no problem with learning, no problem with education, love it, believe firmly in it. No problem with government, governments of God. I'm just saying those are not our messiahs, those are not our saviors. Incidentally, the 20th century, the 20th century produced two of the most scientifically based and most powerful governments ever. Fascism, or Nazi, the Nazi party out of Germany, and communism. Two of the most deadly forms of government in the history of the world. And those forms of government did not believe a Jew or a gypsy was precious in the sight of God. Those forms of government believed political opposition could be shipped off to Siberia and slaughtered. All because of how they answer these questions. Fourth question, every one of you has to answer. Well, how can it be made right? I think we have a God revealed to us in the Bible who wants to fix what's wrong with us, show us our value on the cross, tell us we are here to love him back and love others and be a blessing to glorify God. And he will put his Holy Spirit in us that will begin to change us and take out the wrong in us so we fulfill our who am I, why am I here identity and purpose with fidelity. That's the answers that I think we find here. So, that brings us to the third thing about the Scriptures. The Scriptures have divine power and authority. God's power flows through the truth. God's power flows through His revelation. And it has authority to shape our lives and change our lives in joyous, eternally, blessed, eternally rewarding ways. So we come to this in Isaiah 66, where the Lord declares, I will look favorably on this kind of person. Let's do a little bit of introspection here, church. Are you this kind of person? One who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. See, if I don't really need God and God is optional and I open this, oh, well, that's inconvenient. Uh, well, that doesn't fit me. Uh, well, God doesn't know my situation. I'm different. You know, I, I'm different. Oh, oh, really? No. Oh, that one's good. If that's how we read the Bible, it malfunctions. Not it, we malfunction. So I really think, and I, and I, I hope you're here. If not, I want to help you answer any other hangups you have. Uh, in, in another environment, another way. But I, I hope we're to this point where the bigger question we, we need to wrestle with this morning is not can I trust the Bible, but will I trust it? And to me, that is the question. So here's my advice and encouragement, okay? Read the Bible, but do it when you read, do two things. You read it to meet God and then submit to the God you meet. Meet God and submit to the God you meet. Hey, let's rejoin our four friends as they kind of conclude and share with us where they ended up on their journey of can I believe in God, but I've got questions about the Bible. So, hey, as you know, we talked through a variety of questions uh, that we've kind of faced with Scripture. What are some things that you found helpful uh, in your journey with Scripture just to work through the questions uh, that many of us have had and find ourselves on the other side? Once I've gained a greater perspective on the whole of the Bible, I could see uh, more consistency between 
the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and to see the same qualities of character that we love about Jesus, those were the same uh, characteristics that you find in Yahweh, the mm. God uh, of the Old Testament. Realizing that everything in the Old Testament points to Christ mm. um, is a beautiful thing because you then begin to understand that like everything from the beginning pointed to God giving us a Savior. So even from the beginning with his judgments and with his wrath being poured out time and time again, um, but you also see, like you said, his mercy in that uh, when people repent, as he told Jonah to mm. go to uh, Nineveh and speak this, this kind of condemnation over them, but they repented mm. and he forgave them. Uh, you see that in everything in the Old Testament from David, uh, uh, from Abraham, Lord, and it, it, it points straight to Christ. So it gives this story of since the beginning, God has been trying to save us. Mm. And so like, uh, it just paints a beautiful, joyous picture to where we can understand and appreciate God and, and the light that he should be. Yeah. So, mm. You know, that he would work uh, through time, through men, to give us this book that reveals himself. You see it as um, another miracle from him and one that we're called to, to trust and have faith. So conversations like this, I'm reminded, you know, of just different points in my life and just the, the idea that so often when we have questions about faith, it's easy to feel like we should resist those because to question our question faith or to question things about faith like the Bible uh, is to kind of let go of our faith. When I engage that question and actually enter into it and actually explore it and actually dig deeper into the different layers of scripture and try to find answers and actually allow myself to ask the question. I always find myself on the other side of it with a deeper and a fuller and a richer faith. I think that we often uh, don't realize that doubt can be very useful uh, to our faith. Hmm. So doubt causes us to ask these questions. And I think that really doubt becomes sin when we allow these questions to be answered by something other than God. The doubt itself can like you said, cause us to, to grow in our faith and, and explore these things and, and come to a greater understanding.